to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Today I have with me Dr. Chris Tilling, whom I, I really even said this to him. I really shudder to say that I found his work really late in my dissertation, which if there's any real critique from my dissertation, it's that I didn't know of his work 10 years ago when I should have known of his work. Uh, but Dr. Tilling, thanks so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Lovely to chat. Uh, for the audience here, Dr. Chris Tilling is a graduate tutor and senior lecturer in New Testament studies at St. Melitus College, and he has, uh, whether written or co-edited, quite a few publications. One that we'll be talking somewhat about today, Paul's Divine Christology, I think is one of your earlier works, and uh, particularly one that I'd still have to get my hands on here, uh, the Clark Companion, or the TNT Clark Companion to Christology, because um, I think that's Again, it's going to be very helpful for me, even if it's late in the game. But uh, Dr. Tilling, would you mind letting our audience know a little bit more about you, anything about your story, and kind of what got you into even thinking about Christology, the thing we're going to be talking about today? Oh, crikey. Yeah, lots there. Um, well, thanks for the invitation to to come on and chat about stuff we find fascinating. I, <laughs> I'm i actually not graduate tutor anymore. I'm, I'm head of research, uh, which, oh. which has a sort of similar similar role but um, well i apologize i just went off of the well you know how it is you know you've got to give credit where credit's due no it's it's it really doesn't (laughs) matter but the um uh the the tnt clark companion by the way um or handbook is uh is not published yet but it will be this year so it's uh it's going to be heading to the printing press soon there have been some holdups um which i won't go into now (laughs) Uh, but um yeah editing a large volume like that was was tricky was tricky yeah <laughs> the way oh. of putting it but what got me into christology well um i've i've said this on on other podcasts before but i it was actually picking up i i became a christian fairly late in the day as a sort of late teenager and I wasn't raised in a in a church environment so when i became a christian i just went along to the local library and picked up a book introducing the bible huh and this book turns out was written by christadelphians now not everybody hmm. knows what a christadelphian is um, but it's this this kind of similar to the jehovah witnesses in terms of their christology oh, interesting. yeah and so i just came across a little glimpse of syllogistic logic in there you know god can't be tempted jesus was tempted ergo jesus is not god kind of line yeah, of reasoning right and and uh and i thought uh oh dear does this mean <laughs> everything that i've been taught in this baptist church is a load of crap and, and <laughs> am i just getting everything wrong and and it became an existential concern and something mm-hmm. i always return to i mean if look the heart of christian faith is all about jesus christ so we want to we want to talk about Jesus Christ accurately, and that right. means this is always and inevitably going to be a a central and fascinating topic um, in how we read the Bible, in how we pray, and everything. It's bound up with everything, <laughs> discipleship. So it wasn't just because of that encounter with the Christadelphians; it was also um, because it's been the core of my my faith as well since I became a Christian in my late teens. But I went to university. And um, ended up sitting under the teaching of someone who I, um, a very dear man of God, uh, uh, um, the wonderful Richard Borkham. Mm, wow, yeah. Who um, who further kindled in me a desire to articulate well what is going on in the New Testament um, in surprising ways. And my own doctoral research then, although it began out as most do very ambitiously, focused on Paul and his Christology. Because I think something had to be said as well um, <laughs> yeah. about Paul's Christology. Um, so, yeah, that's what got me into thinking about all of this. Uh, your existential crisis is so much more academically oriented than mine. Because mm-hmm. mine was just seeing that Nat Geo picture of Jesus. You know, the very olive skin, Middle Eastern, oh, yes, curly yeah. hair. 
where I saw that picture and said, that's not the brown haired, blue eyed Jesus that sat over my <laughs> mantle growing up. And that was, so yours is much more academic, actually thinking about the logical implications of Christ. But if, um, for, for some of the listeners, uh, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving a brief overview before we get into that, like hmm. what does Paul say about Christology? Just a quick defining, at least as you find helpful in when we say Christology, what do we really mean, and why is it important to actually go down this path of Christology? Wow. Uh, yeah. I know it's a big question. Yeah, it is. I mean, Christology as a as a word has, has really taken on an awful lot more than its, you know, etymological strict definition. I mean, if if it, if we're simply relating it to the title Christ or Christos or Messiah, um, then um, then we're going to be talking about Jewish tropes relating to kingship and and perhaps right. priesthood, high priesthood, and so on. Um, at least if Crispian, Fletcher, Louis, and others are to be believed, and they probably are at that point. Uh, yeah, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit along the lines of what, what does it mean to speak of particularly Jesus as Christ, an honorific rather than title. Mm. This is some of the more recent work that's been produced by people like Matt Novenson. Um, all of that's very important. But Christology, as you know full well, tends to be used in a broader sense, mm. um, in much the same way that soteriology is broader than just a definition of sotia and, you know, in the Greek and right um, and what that might mean in a in a restricted sense and for for paul it's well no if i back up i'd say it is so important to have a christological orientation because otherwise we, we can't read scripture as holy scripture you know hmm. john john these are the scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life or the or the word of god theology that's in barp or hebrews chapter one where right. there is the intersection of creation and God in the man, Jesus Christ. And so any other word of God needs to not be set as next to that, but included in that and in read in that light. So um, to think rightly and lovingly and longingly and stumblingly about Jesus Christ is going to be key to everything we do right. and say as Christians. Um, uh, you know, otherwise, otherwise we're just my, my friend, Alan Torrance, who, who's a wonderful um, theolo theological thinker. He's now emeritus, and he, he was based in St. Andrews for a number of years. He, he put it like this, you know, I'm a simple Scotsman. I'm not <laughs> going to try and do a Scottish accent, but <laughs> I will just, I'll insult everyone. But he, he said, look, theology, we've got a decision tree, effectively. We've got a choice. We're, we're either beginning with God's word revealed to us in Jesus Christ, or we're making stuff up. Hmm. And and I I resonate with that. Um, yeah. I I think here we are in a place of thinking about the plumb line in theology. It's core, and and this is key for Paul. Um, we need to think accurately about the place of Jesus Christ in construing Paul's theology. Because if we get this a little bit out, then a lot can fall down, and uh, we can talk about where I see that happening um, for sure later mm -hmm. on. But um, yeah, I mean, that's in general terms, but Paul's Christology, talking about the contours of that, and then perhaps we can pick that up in the discussion, you know, what I think it looks like in practice. Yeah. It, the reason why I asked that question is I, I think there is, and this is primarily, I think, in American evangelicalism, uh, and at the university I last taught at, I encountered a lot of pastors who would make a claim to me all the time and say, Oh, I don't need theology. I just preach Jesus. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And and I think for any of us who have studied Christology or any of us have kind of studied theology, we recognize how self-defeating that claim might be, right? Yeah. And yeah. how dangerous it can truly be to talk about this idea of, of preaching about the person of Jesus as Christ without really going down the path of what does it mean, honorific title or otherwise in expanded ways, to actually say, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Mm. Therefore, ergo, I can say, what does that mean for me yeah. today as someone who claims to follow that person, right? Um, so, you know, as as basic as that question is, I always find it really important to kind of 
re re-engage with simply because there's such a mindset of I don't need theology I just preach Jesus that's what yeah. I do at my church and that's where you know all the power of preaching comes from and I go well I think we need to to deal with that and I think one of the one of the struggles is you know Paul uh so we'll just go there now Paul is confusing Paul can be tough Paul can be sometimes simple and sometimes it can be you know, what Peter claims of him, you know, really hard to understand. And sometimes we go to the, I think a lot of people go to scripture and go, well, Paul's not trying to just spell out a Christology and say, here's exactly what I mean when I talk about Jesus as the Christ and what, how that means mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. And so a lot of times I think people in that kind of evangelical church setting just go, well, that's not really what's happening and that's not what's needed. Right. So, I'd throw that back to you. Uh, what is Paul's Christology? Why does Paul say it's important? And then how does he kind of flesh that out so we can start to turn to where the failings have been and how we need yeah. to unpack them? Yeah, okay. Well, I've just got a comment on your 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 blurb there as well because I thought that's fascinating. Just going to preach Jesus, not concerned with theology. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's like saying we don't need syntax. We're just going to speak in sentences. Right. It's um, it's astonishing. But I understand, I understand the instinct as well. Mm-hmm. I I've been involved in enough anti-intellectual, ecclesial, you know, setups to to know. I, I once had a guy lay hands on me and try and cast the demon of theology out of me. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I just clearly didn't work. <laughs> nope. Uh, but it's um. But it is curious. I mean, the instinct is there. I mean, to, bringing it to Paul in First Corinthians eight, Paul I think begins with an epistemological argument, and he has Corinthian knowledgeable who are who claim to know true propositions. There, there is no god but one. No idol in the world really exists. Um, in in many ways, are true statements. Certainly, mm-hmm. the the first. There is no god but one. But they were using this this these true propositions to behave in an unloving manner towards the those who were being destroyed by seeing their activities vis-a-vis the temple because mm. they were just marching into the temple getting the cheap meat having business discussions and all the rest of it um because there is no god but one and therefore there no idol in the world really exists right uh, but uh, paul says that kind of knowledge puffs up love builds up but he goes on to articulate what that knowledge uh, so he's not anti-intellectual. He'll speak of a necessary knowledge in, in that very verse, you see, and, and articulates what it is. It's knowing God and being loved. Uh, um, sorry, um, knowing, uh, uh, loving God and being known by him. Right. Um, th- I mean, this is the heart, I think, of what theology is for Paul. It's um, So I understand the instinct. We don't need theology. Often what they're saying is we don't need the kind of theology that is... Um, uh, what has been modeled to us poorly right um we we want to preach jesus christ and and him living and real but of course they're creating a false dichotomy there right um but it's um i get it i get it too uh to a certain extent but i think paul is a good bridge you know to bring bring it back to your question um what is paul's christology or what does it mean you know he for paul Christology is bound up with the warp and woof of his life. It's hmm. it's not merely something that you can write down on a piece of paper um, in much the same way that it was insu- insufficient what the, uh, the knowledgeable in Corinth were saying. It's bound up in, in a lived relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and this is Christology for Paul. For Paul, I think uh, Christology is about living in relationship with the risen Lord and the reality of the risen Lord. Um, and that, that is his grammar, his theological grammar, the way he expresses himself. Right. And so he will speak of, um, you know, considering everything as dung compared to, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, or, or of rather wanting to depart and be with the Lord, which is better by far, you know, Philippians chapter one, right. second Corinthians chapter five, Philippians chapter three, uh, all of this articulates the center of Paul's 
theology, the, the heartbeat of his theology. You cut it open. This is what you find. You find a, a lively relationship with the reality of, of Jesus Christ risen and ascended by the Holy Spirit. And these, this is what we, I think we, we find to be the core of his, his understanding of Jesus. And then rolled into that are um, retrospectively um, a number of hugely important themes where he's picking up on the scriptures of Israel, tropes relating to messiahship, um, lordship, sonship, and so on. Um, but that's um, a retrospective act in light of being held and in this lively relationship with a real risen and ascended Lord. Right. And and that leads me, I think, to another question for Paul, and, and this may be betraying the conversation we had before we hit record in the sense of me saying one of the problems of my own work uh, that I'm still struggling with. When we say something like that for Paul, his Christology is kind of built on this idea of a lively relationship with Christ what does that mean for Paul? I mean, in some sense, right? Because my Pentecostal, my Pentecostal upbringing, even though I've kind of, I'm not a part of Pentecostalism proper as a denomination any longer, but I'm still very much a Pentecostal in my ethos because mm-hmm. of that upbringing, is to say, well, that's experience, right? I think of the Damascus Road experience. He experiences the person of Christ in a very real and visceral way, and that experience yeah. now shapes all of this other thing, all this other kind of conversation, because he has experienced this moment of Christ. But in your understanding, when when you say that for Paul, for Paul, what does he mean by having a lively relationship? How does that begin? What does that mean? And how does one have that relationship as a part of that Christology? Yeah. I mean, this is what, what I tried to do in my own early doctoral work was was to paint an inductive picture of what this, what I call the Christ relation is. It's um, um, so I didn't set out to delimit my search with a series of definitions that would um, stipulate the, the contours of what I'd be looking at. I, I tried to allow the material to, to um, dictate the terms a little bit more there and as far as you can. And what effectively what I got to is to see that Paul um, Paul obviously used a lot of propositions. It's a part of his understanding of Christology. Um, but those propositions meet on the bones, if you like. Their their context was a life lived in worship, hmm. um, uh, a life lived that, um, as I saw it, the, the relationship with the risen Lord was patterned after Israel's relationship with Yahweh and used exactly the same kind of language in order to describe it which is why it was so significant christologically in terms of the divine christology debate that i was speaking into but it was a it's a relationship that involves absence christ is absent and paul was keenly aware of this as were the communities and they're waiting until Hmm. he he comes but it was also a relationship that was mediated by the power of the holy spirit christ was present and active in these communities in tangible ways leading paul um um, healing people, um, delivering people, um, speaking to people, um, you know, through the Holy Spirit. It was a relationship that was um, very much determined according to um, devotion. And that's not just cultic worship tropes. I mean, I'm talking that the whole of life lived, as, as is the case, of course, for um, the kind of spirituality, if you want to use that term, in, in the Pentateuch. Uh, you, you have... Um, ultimate goals and passions associated with the risen lord right um, seeing christ as above all and and in everything and for everything um to live to live for christ is 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 everything um and it, everything um, negative would be contrasted with this relationship as well sin and and uh, um uh, idolatry in first corinthians 10 and, and all of these this language is used to describe what is opposite of the the christ relationship right um and much more besides i mean i try to detail the contours of this relationship in hundreds of pages but effectively it's all about the lives lived and it becomes quite tangible and um to take a very practical example i built on first corinthians 8 which i mentioned earlier on where paul is having a go at the corinthian knowledgeable with their propositions mere propositions yeah and he ends up contrasting 
this relational covenantal account of being known by God by then speaking about relationship with Jesus Christ for the rest of this argument in 1 Corinthians 8 and then as it's picked up again in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Um, in other words, it's a, it's a relationship that is determined in certain uh, measure by a pattern of relationship that Israel had with Yahweh. Um, and that's why it's Christology proper, by the way. It's a divine Christology. Yeah. Now, would it be, I mean, taking that kind of logic, right, that he's he's got, he does, he makes so many propositions, right? So many claims, uh, moral claims, propositional claims, ethical claims. And I think so very often a lot of people read Paul and they read those claims as those are the claims that are, uh, I, I love what you had to say about First Corinthians 8, right? Like these are true claims, and so therefore we do these things. Where for Paul, if I'm hearing you right, it's it's a bit different. Those claims are made because of the relationship, not vice versa. Hmm. Not the claims are the claims into the relationship, but actually are the, the claims that are made because of the relationship that is existing. Paul can make these claims as his Christology. Am I, am I wrong? Am I off here? Or No, I, th- I, li- I like that um, broadly. I mean, I want to add a little qualification. It's, but but the, the essence is, for Paul, this knowledge of, of Christ, what we might call Christology, isn't something we own. Right. It's not something we possess and can master. It's rather something or someone who holds and possesses us. And and that puts a different spin on the way mm-hmm. in which Christology proper would be articulated for Paul. Um, it's certainly language that we can mobilize apart from a relationship with Jesus, I, I think. Right. Um, but um, But it finds its true expression as theology proper in this relationship that God enables by the Holy Spirit. Um, it's It belongs to God. It's his knowledge of us revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, um, that's the key uh, mm-hmm. point. And in other words, a relational epistemology, which is what I've always spoken about in all of these things, is a, is a revelational Christology. Hmm. Uh, unpack that a little bit for the listeners. A relational epistemology as a revelational Christology. Yeah. Uh, so, if if knowledge of Jesus and God in Jesus Christ isn't just stuff you put on a page in propositions, but is bound up in our lived lives in relationship with this risen Lord. Um, this isn't to say that Christology is us pulling up our moral bootstraps and being damn good disciples you know <laughs> right heaven right. help us i mean our theologies aren't that impressive anyway but then they would be even worse if if the truth tabulation of 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 our christology was the quality of our discipleship that's not the point a relational christology is to be folded into what god has done in jesus christ for us and in us and 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 um, by the Holy Spirit, uh, how I tend to see these things is, you know, God Christology for Paul is is there's a a beautiful triune shape to it. God in love sends Jesus Christ. He assumes our enslaved Adamic nature. It is terminated on the cross. God raises from from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, where He is seated at God's right hand and lives to make intercession for us. We have three actors, if you like, and terrible language to use, but let's just right. stick with it for now. Right, um, and that story for Paul is our story. That's the key for understanding hmm. Paul. His death is our death. We don't die apart from Jesus. His resurrection is our resurrection. We are raised with him, as right. Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter four. This is the solution to the cosmic drama. You know, the the, the power of sin is terminated on the on the cross. We believe that one died, therefore all died, and in resurrection it is new creation, one set free from the powers of sin and death. And um, so that's to say that. That relationship, which is at the heart of Paul's understanding of who Jesus is, bound up into the warp and woof of everything he wants to say about Jesus, is something that God has done for us in Jesus. We are in Christ. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's revelational. It's it's bound up with the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, you know, Galatians chapter one and so on. So that relational Christology is is revelational. I, I love that um, from some of my own reading of of Gustav Adolf Deismann mm, and, yeah. and his his proclamations of you know a uh, a, a story debate at this point in Pistis Christu in Galatians two mm. in this. Uh, 2.16, and this passage about, is it faith of Christ, faith in Christ, faithfulness of, and so on and so forth. And, and for him, one of the, one of the most fundamental things as a German speaker and not an English speaker, he actually, I mean, he did some, but had a, a translator translate his works. The translator in him realized that what he was trying to say in German couldn't be translated in English. And what he was trying to say was that for Paul in Galatians 2, faith Faith was not something to be put into Christ, nor was faith something that Christ as an object did, but it was a a relational positioning. Faith, he said, the the whole weight of the phrase is actually on the proposition, or sorry, the preposition, not the two other terms. It's quite literally a faith that's inside of being Mm -hmm. in Christ, which he calls the mystic genitive, right? Like it has, it has all to do with the relational positioning mm-hmm. by which these other things may happen. And I, and I like that. And I think that makes sense based kind of what you're saying in some of that reading is that when we think about Christology this way, or at least Paul's Christology, to me at least, it makes Paul's letters so much more loving then they mm. often kind of can be seen as if they are a rod and staff in certain places. Oh, absolutely right. That's dead right. And 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 I, I, I love the fact that you went to Diasman. You know, he was one of the inspirations for my my doctoral research, reading his um his volumes, especially relating to to Paul. Yeah, it's actually one of mine too. So I'm glad oh, to hear you well, say that interesting. too. Yeah, very I write interesting. quite a bit on him. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I learned a lot from him. Obviously, many at that time and were following him used uh, mystique, you know, mysticism uh, mm-hmm. as uh, the term to describe these things. And I backed away from that for methodological reasons. Um, but um, but yeah, absolutely. I think you're dead right to pick up a resonation there. And 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 by the way, this self-involving stuff, as you say, is Paul. It is Paul. But it's not just Paul. I mean, the creeds for crying out like uh, we believe in, you know, this is there's a there's a moment there. It's not just there is it's we believe in. And that, I think that's something that we uh, often uh, miss. Yeah. Now, I think at this point, then maybe it would be helpful because I think a lot of people might be listening to this and go, well, yeah, like, you know what I mean? And, and I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way, but like in, in the sense of going like that really resonates. I definitely agree. But sometimes it's that juxtaposition that helps us recognize, oh, this is how that's actually different and maybe different mm-hmm. from what I have always assumed or what I've been taught or so on and so forth. So you, you alluded earlier to this kind of like ways that we've gotten Christology, especially in Paul wrong. So mm. I would love to hear from you kind of like what when you were kind of doing this work, what did you see it kind of working juxtaposed against or in light of that made you go this way of thinking about Paul's Christology is much more healthy, correct, right, theological, whatever the term might be. Well, yeah. I mean, when I first started on this path, I I had a few interlocutors that I was keen to, you know, take down as it were, and some of whom I had tremendous respect for. And I mean, maybe most importantly jimmy dunn mm-hmm. um his his work in christology in the making and in many essays on on pauline christology and other early christian christology left a big impact on me and i i've always been deeply impressed um by him and his work uh, so i had a clear target there i was picking up on someone who emphasized Use typical strategies, emphasize subordinationist language, and First um, Corinthians 15 became a hermeneutical key for understanding Kyrios Lord, lordship language in, in Paul. The distinction between uh, worship language used in relation to God rather than used in relation to Jesus Christ, the lack of worship languages as, as you know in relation to Jesus. Um, even to you know the last days of his life, he was uh, publishing 
um, th these kind of arguments regurgitated in different forms. Hmm. So I had a clear target there. That was that was one way of getting it wrong, I, I thought, because it was picking up on things that were minimal and peripheral and missing the wood for the trees. You know, this hmm. he just he he didn't see just how fundamentally threaded throughout Paul's letters was a divine Christology once it's calibrated as the Christ relation. But a little bit later on, it dawned on me that the pro problems are a little bit more subtle than that. Hmm. Um, it's it's not just about getting Christology wrong officially in, in terms of whether it's <laughs> right. divine or not. Right. But it's it's understanding the actual work Christology is doing in a reading. Um, and so someone, again, whom I, I've respected and admired enormously um, is um, N.T. Wright, who, you know, endorsed Paul's divine Christology and uh, my my first book, and he was kind enough to read the draft of uh, no the the published um, Morzebeck volume, and provide me with a list of typos <laughs> that he discovered <laughs> ready to edit for the Erdmann's, um, uh publication of of uh, the second volume, uh, the second edition. Sorry, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so you know, I've I've learnt so much from Tom, and have been inspired by his own approach to doing. Uh, exegesis his his book jesus and the victory of god was a, a key turning point for mm -hmm. me in rescuing me from uh fear i guess is the only way of putting it fear of 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 using my brain um in in the life of faith uh but as i as i and and he's he's you know in many ways at least perhaps not so much with jesus and the victory of god but in his account of of paul's christology and paul and the faithfulness of god there is um, a strong emphasis on the divinity of Christ uh, in his own particular way. You know, the return of Yahweh um, uh, from exile becomes Jesus, you know, in Jesus Christ. And so he tries to articulate a divine Christology in Paul. However, although I have problems with that particular way of doing it, hmm. more importantly, I found Jesus was still taking up... Uh, he was still a subplot for Tom Wright in a larger story. Um, and this, this, this is what I mean by subtle. Hmm. You know, there's a, there's a grand narrative um, of creation through to the end. And inside that, there's a story of Israel. And inside that, there's the story of, of Jesus Christ. Right. And what that ends up doing, it, it, it then enables front loading when you're reading Paul's letters and you can draw all kinds of um, theories that are uncontrolled, Christologically speaking, into your reading of Paul. And, and then I think just create a bit of a, a bit of a mess um, with with Christology. I mean, an orthodox Christology, divine Christology isn't simply saying that Jesus is God, you know, or divine or however you want right. to say that. It's it's meaning that Jesus is first, second and third, first, middle and last in our theological constraints. Jesus isn't a smaller plot in a larger narrative. Mm -hmm. He is mm -hmm. the larger narrative. And in light of Jesus, this is the revelational element of the relational. In light of Jesus, we work out the rest, not the other way around. Right. That was for me absolutely key in in uh, an insight that I learned from Karl Barth and Douglas Campbell um, uniquely from Douglas Campbell um, and mm -hmm. his work, um, The Deliverance of God and the Quest for Paul's Gospel, um, which he he published at that point, um, to see some other areas where I disagree in a more subtle, you know, with with Tom Wright, even though the, the ground and the co the cause is more subtle. What what I like about that, and it's interesting because Campbell also helped me understand Deisman. It's uh, hmm. a lot of crossover there, but. Um, what I like about that is, you know, I've, I've been at error too, in terms of at first, you know, people that I, I truly respect, you know, kind of engaging and going, this is wrong and realizing that it was always more subtle than what I was trying to say, mm -hmm. what was wrong. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But more than anything, I think it's important try to kind of explain this in some way for everyone listening is, is that it's those small subtlenesses that actually do really make implications to the way that we think about and engage with the person of Christ or think about and engage with the scripture, which reveals who the person of Christ is. Right. Yeah. Like it, 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 it fundamentally, I mean, this is, 
and again, this is a concern for me as a Pentecostal, but that's where kind of like the pneumatological concern might be a, a right. greater concern, right? It's it's that very kind of fine subtleness of the thread of the weight of of the way that Luke is talking about the Spirit, and even Paul, I, I truly believe, fundamentally changes the way that churches engage ecclesiologically in worship and yeah. think yeah. about the role of the Spirit and the work of Christ today, and it's just a small, subtle change, right? Mm-hmm. So when if you would kind of say, here's maybe some ways, some practices for people who are wanting to think more about this, when they're reading Paul, what kind of mm-hmm. things should they pick up on in Paul as they're thinking about how does Paul relate to the person of Christ mm-hmm. in terms of what he's saying, and how does that relate to people? I, I think this is me probably putting more on that kind of like pastoral hat, so to speak. But the the ideas of just like how do people who are concerned about Paul's Christology and what that means for them, how how what's a what's a better way of picking up those texts and seeing these? Oh yeah, that's a great question. I goodness me, um, I I think we always need to be careful that we we have. What's the word we've um we've tamed paul because we use similar language to him mm-hmm. you know we often think it's his language you know we use language like faith uh you know as you know full well in your own research <laughs> right justification mm-hmm. uh law um you know th- this kind of 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 uh repertoire of words a sin and we have definitions for these. We we just assume we know what they mean. And then we come and read Paul and we just read our meaning into Paul. And what ends up happening is we end up using Paul to endorse our nonsense. Huh. Yeah. We we just we just give our badly thought out theology, which is often more subliminal or or um implied. And and we give it voice through Paul. We we use him as ventriloquists. Hmm. And I think the key is to feel the oddness of Paul. You, you know, not not to think that we own him, that we've got him, that we've sorted him. I can tell you now, we haven't sorted the <laughs> right. Apostle Paul. No. Luther didn't. Calvin sort of sure as hell didn't. <laughs> Methodists didn't. The new perspective hasn't. You know, there's so much to say right. there. We we haven't sorted Paul out yet uh that he's 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 much more confusing and unsettling you know hand this man over to satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the lord that's the apostle paul we need to feel his otherness Mm. to disentangle our crap from the words that he uses so there's a negative moment here i think is is first off we need to feel his oddness remember his otherness his distinction from us but then I offer just two key principles for reading a good reading of Paul. Um, I'd, I'd boil it down to two. Obviously, you can, you can up the number um, and nuance these. But let's just throw these out. Useful for pastors, perhaps. I think a good reading of Paul is one that takes Paul's historical particularity seriously. Hmm. Um, it's going to be one that really wrestles with the question, why did Paul write Romans? what's going on it isn't systematic theology and it wasn't written just floating above the you know two meters above the reality of the roman right ecclesia right it it was it was dealing with particular contingent concerns same with all of the letters and that needs to be taken very seriously otherwise we can end up again just putting all of our stuff in into paul's uh, mouth Mm -hmm. um the ventriloquism thing comes back it's a useful way of remembering paul's otherness keeping in mind the historical particularity of Paul's letters. And the second um, uh, tip I offer students for a good reading of Paul is a more theological one, but it's one that emerges out of, a, I think, a closer reading of his letters. A good reading of Paul is one which will lead us to a greater appreciation of the unconditional love of God revealed Mm. in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, there's a Trinitarian dynamic to unconditionality or covenantal unconditionality in a good reading of Paul, I think. Yeah. Um, if we can, if if our reading starts to drift away from that, if we start to qualify that 
then we've probably cocked it up somewhere to just you mm. know continue with the technical yeah. terms you know we probably messed it up somewhere and that's so that's a good guide for engaging paul so that's worthwhile checking get people to read through a chapter of romans let's say and are they led to a greater appreciation of the unconditional love of god revealed in jesus christ and by the holy spirit no well then try again <laughs> yeah and and what i love about that is that that humbleness of approaching scripture um that seems to in my own estimation have been lost in the more devotional readings of scripture mm. right the the humbleness of saying going to scripture and recognizing it's complex yeah it is it is embodied it is mm. something happening with paul at a time and a space yeah. so contextualized that the assumption that I can just go to it and pick it up and all of a sudden I've got it, I know what it means and I'm, and I'm going to apply something to my life seems to me antithetical to the thing itself, right? Yeah. Like it, it yeah. really, it really loses what, what God is trying to reveal to us as people when we treat it as a magic text. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. Uh, so you know, what's your advice then? How do you, how do you help pastors or readers of the Bible to sort of disentangle from using it as a magical text? Oh, gosh. Uh, and now I realize what those big questions are that I'm asking now that you're yeah. asking me one, right? Uh, you know, one of the, and this is a tool that I, I used in, in some hermeneutics courses that I taught. And, and you know, in a, in a classic herm, biblical hermeneutics, you know, for a lot of people, it's you're, you're going to study a passage, a passage in scripture. It's going to be your text for the year, and you're going to write some large exegesis paper out of it, right? I, the way that I often tried to do that with my students was that I actually made them write the quote-unquote application first. Hmm. And I said, read the text. Now write what you think it means and how you would preach it, how you would apply it. I want you to write that first. And then throughout the semester, we're learning. We're learning some of those contextual realities. We're learning some of what's going on. We're, we're getting into our you know, research and our, and our texts and, and so on and so forth, right? Um, using uh, a lot of times Michael Gorman's book on exegesis. I think it's great mm -hmm. little help, right, through this process. And basically, I have them write the paper at the end again. And then I say, at the end, I say, if your application is the same today as it was when you first started this course, you've ultimately failed in hmm. your engagement because what you've just shown just very, very practically is that the study of the text hasn't actually helped you engage with the text. Oh, very clever. Oh, right? I like that. Yeah. It's yeah. very much just, you very much have already made up your mind what you think the text means. And the study has just been the academic bit that you've done on the side, mm -hmm. but those two things haven't met. And I would honestly say that probably 85 to 90% of the time, the students, their their applications, their what does this text mean, came out the same. Now, that wasn't mm. the end result. I, I would say, okay, now go back and you have to rewrite this. Like, not right. the whole paper. Go back to your research and, and really try again to say, what is Paul doing? We often did Galatians. What is Paul doing uh, in your research versus what are you doing in your application? And, and we kind of restarted that process again to kind of say now that was more in an academic setting but i would almost kind of argue that same thing for pastors you know yeah. a lot of times pastors will say to me when they are going to read well here's my process right i i grab like four different translations i read all these translations and then you know and then i'll go to some text and i'll start studying you know and in, in commentaries and the like and, and i would say the same thing well have somewhat a hermeneutic of skepticism of your mm -hmm. own application, write it out. Be be upfront with what you believe the text means upfront. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's better for us to be honest with what we first originally think it means. Yeah. To find yeah. out that we're wrong is better than to yeah. go through the process and have given that wrong application or wrong. Yeah, meaning. yeah. So that that's my kind of very base. Oh, and that's more excellent. in hermeneutic than in yeah, Paul, but it's right? it's very applied, isn't it? It's it's really there's a method almost to to help people to engage mm -hmm. with the text in a new way. I absolutely love it. I've made some notes there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's helpful, you know, I hope uh, I hope it is. But uh, you know, 
I think this has been been really interesting conversation. And what I would maybe as we kind of wrap up here, because I don't want to take too much of your time. I know you've got a lot going on, but um, if if anything, so you've written a lot on Christology. I know you've written a lot on different subjects, but when you talk about kind of some of those major texts of yours, a lot of it's kind of focused on Christology. Two, I always do this and I shouldn't, it's a podcast. I should ask one question at a time, but I get too ahead of myself. Two kind of <laughs> questions here for you. The first one is kind of what, what's been the most surprising? I think maybe one of the most kind of like aha moments in your study, just because I think that helps sometimes people recognize how beautiful it is to study mm. these things. Yeah. And then the second one is actually more on what has it done for you? Like, how has it shaped or formed you as you've gone through this study? Because, again, I grew up in a tradition that said, you're not a seminary, but that said seminary is cemetery, right? You go to seminaries to lose your faith, <laughs> yeah. not to get your That's faith, it. right? Yeah. And so oftentimes I like asking that question is a sense of like, really that, I mean, I don't even have time to say why that's wrong, but sometimes the stories of here's how it shaped me in my own Christ life really helps yeah. people along that process of why it's so good oh wow great couple of questions there yeah i um when i can pluck a pluck one out because it kind of relates to how it shaped me one key aha moment for me was uh, was engaging the theology of karl barth i i were moved out to germany and i and had lived in germany for a number of years and i had sort of lost a lot of my connections in my more conservative Christian circles back home in hmm. the UK. And at that point, you know, I was very committed to a certain understanding of the relationship between the Bible and what I believe. You know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. <laughs> right. Get away from me, you liberal scum, kind of <laughs> that sort of thing. I don't, without yep. being too facetious, that was a little bit of what was going on. I became very defensive. And furthermore, I needed to be a gatekeeper to my own, mm. to my own claims of truth. I needed to be able to establish the truthfulness of these. And at that time, I was engaging with some of the new atheists. And, and I remember one Christmas sitting in a, in a church feeling overwhelmed by all of the questions that I was wrestling with, hmm. unable to keep up with them. Um, and the certainty of my faith really did dem demand that I had to provide a foundation to um, my beliefs and um, to provide an answer. And engaging the theology of Karl Barth, and then later with more specificity, John Webster, and then after him, oh, people yeah. like Doug Campbell, mm -hmm. um, as it applied to Paul, um, Doug Campbell, let it be said, he is the most brilliant scholar working on the Apostle Paul um, at the moment, uh, bar none, hmm. um, by a long way, the hmm. most brilliant. Um, and I know not everyone would agree with that, but that's often just because they have misunderstood him. Um, astonishing. Uh, but anyway, back back to the point. With Karl Barth, it's, um, I learned that it wasn't all about me or my ability to answer all of the questions. I didn't need to provide a foundation for my beliefs. Jesus Christ is the one foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it meant I didn't yep. need to take myself so damn seriously. Yeah. That was absolutely crucial for me. I was decentered in a good way. Yeah. By recognizing that God has spoken a word in Jesus Christ. And and um and then I could delight in orientating my life around uh, that word that God had spoken yeah. rather than then feverishly trying to shore up the, the walls. Um, right. It would, as a very different relationship then to, to Jesus Christ. And that shaped me by, by relaxing me and giving me an insatiable curiosity as well to read widely. And I developed a delight in having my head messed with as a result. Yeah. I mm. loved picking up scholars who would, absolutely screw with me um, <laughs> because i could yeah it, it, it didn't this the stakes weren't so high okay sure my theology may change why not right. but i'm held by jesus right and that became the then he became the cornerstone rather than me with my purported um brilliance in answering questions which is of course nonsense we're all stupid right. and so i I think it was for me that was a bit a big moment. Karl Barth um 
um, for all of his flaws, had a unique grasp, I think, on the importance of the Irenaean principle, we know for God through God, and yeah. applied that in the, in a modern uh, idiom in, in yeah. a unique way, and then driven, as Chris um, will no doubt um, be able to wax lyrical, others have picked up, like Robert Jensen, beautifully. Yeah. Um, uh, in order to, so that would be my my answer, I suppose. I could talk about some other things, but but that's always a biggie for me. I named yeah. my son Carl Lucas for a, for a reason. Huh. Yeah. No, I I love that. I, we do not have time to go down the rob, rabbit trail of deconstruction by any stretch. But <laughs> your 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 story, I think, resonates with me so well because that's a similar kind of path for me in that kind of same thought process of. Yeah, not being the angry, half-witted, somewhat smart person who I say somewhat smart who's read enough books to be dangerous, right? To, yeah, yeah. To want to weaponize theology versus loving to explore and just picking up things, yeah, and and finding things out, and uh, it made a big difference. So I I, I love that. Thank you for that. Um, before I let you go. Any, I know we, we talked about the TNT Clark, um, but any kind of books that you would want to kind of say, you've also got your podcast, so talk about your podcast. Uh, any ways people can connect with you, your work, and what you're doing? Oh, that's very kind. Thanks. Yeah, well, I'm working on, <laughs> working on, I haven't done that so much this time, uh, the the NICNT um, commentary on 2 Corinthians. I'm replacing the one that's already been published and it's a lot of work i'll be on it for years i've got a little book coming out with um whip and stock in the uh what's the series again the reading reading acts reading first corinthians reading hmm. whatever yeah. it's called the cascade one i'm doing the romans one um oh, and nice. that should be uh, a lot easier to uh to churn out um yeah there's a few other little things like that on the horizon but staying in touch with me i'm always uh always love having interactions with folk on Twitter. So long as people don't get too offended with crass humor, um, <laughs> it's then, then, you know, just follow uh, Chris. Uh, was it at Chris Tilling? I do have a blog. It's a little bit defunct these days. I mean, I did have a guest do some posts on it um, a couple of months ago. A fascinating critique of penal substitutionary atonement. Huh. Um, Andrew Rillera, I asked him, um, he's a, he's a brilliant young scholar and yeah. a friend. Um, so yeah, that's at blog.christilling.de. Uh, apart from that, um, yeah, that's that's about it really. I um, don't have any more. So obviously, on script, uh, uh, part of the team there, an incredible team of some incredible people. I'm just one of the the hosts there, uh, but I really do enjoy chatting with folk and learning from them. Yeah, me too. If anything, that's yeah. why I do this. It's just so yeah. I can chat with people, right? So, hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been wonderful, and I hope that we get to talk soon. Thanks very much, Aaron. God bless you.